0: Well, it's great to be here with the family of God on a Christmas Eve, and we're looking forward to time together tonight as well, uh, joining together in songs of worship for our Savior and His coming. Isaiah will be our passage, uh, mostly in chapter 8. It's a passage that uh, some people are familiar with, others are not, but it's one of the richest passages in the Scripture when it comes to the story of Christmas, really spanning between a promise of a virgin-born child in chapter 7 up to a promise of a son who will be given and the kingdom of the government will rest on his shoulders. And all in between, there is this message of darkness. I think about it a lot whenever I think about where we are today. I notice it seems like every year the encroachment more and more of worldliness of the greed or the secularism or the materialism or whatever it might be into the story of christmas the music the uh, stuff that you hear the stuff that you see sold has less and less to do with anything related to god to his truth to his son it's a it's a sad thing to see that invasion all around us to think that somehow The message is being lost, but it's really no different than the very context from which he was promised here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was ministering in a dark age. In fact, you may remember in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, those words which were quoted related to our Lord's ministry by Matthew. Isaiah says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. To understand all of what Isaiah is saying there to understand the glory of this light that he's talking about. You really have to understand the darkness. And to get that context, if you will, you can go all the way back in chapter 8 and pick up, as we will in a moment, in verse 11, to begin understanding where Isaiah was. He was in a time when there was a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and turmoil in his own culture. People were unsettled by a number of different things. They were unsettled by foreign powers that they felt were threatening them. They were unsettled by a government that they felt was corrupt and weak and unable to protect them, distrustful of their leaders, distrustful even of their religious leaders, and all around a sense of... of uh, bewilderment in terms of where they should turn. They were looking for answers in all the wrong places. And in the midst of all that, God has a message for Isaiah. He has a message for him. We might say, first of all, calling him to be courageous in the midst of a, a culture of counterfeit truth. He wants him to be courageous in this culture of counterfeit truth, and you hear it in verse 11, the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. What he's talking about here, the word conspiracy, by the way, is just a word for association. What he's talking about here was this notion that was spreading throughout his nation that what they needed was some sort of alliance with the pagan powers around them they were being threatened by syria a nation to the north who was going to come in and going to destroy their cities and take their possessions and their farms They were unsure that their governing leaders could protect them. They were certainly unsure that they could stand against this foe in any other way. And so they were looking for what were essentially alliances. And so God is telling Isaiah, look, don't don't fall into the trap that's all around you of thinking that you are subject to the same kind of threats that these people think they're subject to. Don't fall into the notion that your only hope is in the alliances, the conspiracies for alliances that they may turn to. In fact, he says, verse 13, "...but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he'll become a sanctuary." And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall away and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. God is telling Isaiah, look, there is a judgment coming. This people has turned away from me. But you're not to do that. You're not to turn away. You're not to fear what they fear, dread what they dread. You're not to fall into their plans and their alliances and their conspiracies to, to bind together with whatever worldly powers may be out there. You're to make me holy in your heart. You may recognize that as a passage that Peter picks up on and quotes whenever he's talking to us as Christians. When he tells us to sanctify Christ as holy in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Peter understood what what Isaiah was being called to do. He was being called to put his hope in the Lord when no one else really thought that was practical. People would have ridiculed him as one who was perhaps overly pious, overly religious, maybe a little bit fanciful in his notions of religion to think that he doesn't need all of the powers of the world and all the wisdom of the world, that all he needs to do is set apart God is holy in his heart and to trust in the Lord, to think that that is going to get him through life, they would have ridiculed him. But Isaiah was called to stand against the winds of culture and to be courageous as they began to turn against him. He says, God tells him in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And then Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah understood his role His role was twofold. His role was to be a beacon, a sound of warning to the people who were facing so much judgment. And his role was to be faithful with the truths that were given to him, to continue to seal them up and bind them up and in a way guard, we might even say hide them in the hearts of his disciples. The Lord had sent him with a very clear message. In fact, he had given him Some special children. One of them is spoken about at the very beginning of chapter 8. His name was Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Which is hasten or speedily to the spoil. He he even named his children. He dedicated his life in every way to getting this message out. That the, the spoils of the enemy... That the destruction that was coming on Jerusalem would be swift. That God's punishment was on its way. And that there was nothing the people could do to stop it. Short of repenting. So here's a man who just, in very broad terms, is called to a courageous message in the midst of a dark culture. We are in that sort of season ourselves in our society. People around us may take God's name on their lips, they might speak from time to time about God blessing our nation or blessing their family or blessing their meal. But when it comes to the practical matters of life, they have no real hope in God. They have no real trust in Him. They have no real intent to follow His will. In fact, that takes us, if you will, to a second portion of this passage, which moves beyond the courage of Isaiah to the context of their darkness. As you'll see, he begins to speak to them in verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching... And to the testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they shall be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, They'll be thrust into darkness. That's a a bleak picture of Isaiah's time. But he's clear where it comes from as people are turning to every so-called guru, every so-called expert that they can for answers to their life. They're not only looking to foreign powers and alliances, they were looking to the necromancers. They were looking to the mediums who in their day would have been looked at as the experts of the soul. These were the ones who had insight and special knowledge into the heart and mind of man. And so people began to turn to them to find answers for life. Probably similar to King Saul, you remember, when King Saul and 1 Samuel 28 said that King Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord didn't answer him. And instead of waiting on the Lord, he sent his servants to go and to find a spiritist, a medium, a witch of Endor, who could call upon the dead to give him answers for life. This was Isaiah's nation. They had assumed that they sought the Lord, they had figured in their minds that they prayed, they called out, they sought for answers, they asked God for help, and God didn't answer them. And so, out of impatience, they turned their heart away from the Lord, and they turned to these mediums, these spiritists who mutter and chirp. That sort of gives the picture of their incantations, maybe even their ventriloquist tricks to fool people into thinking that they're hearing voices from the dead but Isaiah tells them shouldn't the people inquire of their God why would you turn to all these so called gurus why would you turn to all these experts thinking that somehow they have the answers of life He says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. It's a lot packed in that little phrase. Without taking any time to go there, it basically is built against the backdrop of Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 is a warning against Israel that there would come days when they would be in distress and they would be tempted to turn to all sorts of authorities for answers. And they're warned at that point about those who would come along supposing to give answers to life and the future and the soul and all the important things of the inner man. They're told to beware lest they be led away into falsehood and false worship. And, and then God gives a, a warning about Prophecy saying, look, if any prophet arises among you and speaks and he doesn't speak with absolute truth, then you're to regard him as a false prophet. You're to recognize that if he doesn't speak with absolute truth, he doesn't speak for God. It's like the shifting winds, the fads of culture who come along and they have their answers for your health and your life and well-being and those fads and those answers change every decade or so as new fads sweep along, and every one of them promises to be the answer to millions of people. They, they plunge into them with all their zeal, all their time, all of their pocketbook, only to have the sands shifting underneath them when the winds change. This is where Israel was. And so Isaiah is telling them, look, go to the law. Go to the Word of God. This is all you need. If people don't speak according to that, if they don't align their counsel, their wisdom with the Word of truth, he says they have no dawn. Shakar is the word. It's an interesting word. It basically means the beginning of light. And, and he's saying that one of two things. He might be saying they don't have an ounce of light within them. Or more likely what he's saying is that in the midst of your darkness they're promising you the hope of the dawning of a new day but there is no dawn. You keep going to them again and again and again your gurus, your experts, your your uh, counselors, whatever they are. You keep turning them on and listening to their shows. You keep watching their episodes and reading their books. You keep listening to... Whatever they're telling you again and again and again. And you keep holding out hope that it's going to make a difference in your life. But there's no dawn. The sun's not going to rise on their message. He says Israel will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. They'll go through this season of deep anguish and distress. When they're hungry, they'll be enraged and they'll first of all speak contemptuously against their king. You'll see a grumbling and complaining against their governing authorities. They'll rec- recognize, uh, or I should say, they'll falsely put their hope that somehow their king or their leaders or their governors or their whatever can do something for them. And when they extend that hope and find that hope disappointed, they'll begin to grumble, complain, riot. And so you'll see sort of a, an uneasiness Within their own nation, against their own leaders, a disenchantment with all of the structures and institutions around them because they have been disappointed again and again and again by those institutions. And he says they'll even speak what? Contemptuously against their God and turn their faces upward. It's a really amazing picture. This wasn't an atheistic society. This wasn't a people who needed some sort of further evidences to the existence of God. These were people who seemingly acknowledged that there was a God. They were just angry with Him. Their life was caving in. Their troubles were heaping up. Their problems weren't going away. They were more distressed economically, more distressed psychologically, more distressed emotionally. And as things heaped up one on top of another, they became angry against the institutions around them, against their, go- against their king and their government, and eventually against their God. With their faces turned upward, it gives this idea of them cursing God. They would be the ones that said, look, I tried prayer. I tried to reach out to God. I tried to speak to God. I told Him my problems. He didn't do anything for me. Look at the mess that my life is in. He says in verse 22, they'll look to the earth. Having turned to their government, having turned to their God and believing that there are no answers there, they'll look anything around them, whatever resources they could find. This is what Paul in Colossians chapter 2 calls the elemental principles of this world. Any kind of philosophy, any kind of spiritualism, any kind of source of human authority, they'll look there. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. In fact, he says they'll be thrust into thick darkness. Just compounding their darkness. They're lost. They're meandering through life. And every answer that they thought that they had, Has been quashed. And with every turn. They become more disillusioned. More distressed. More anguished. Until they find themselves. In the place of the thickest. Darkness. Gloom. They look around them. There seems to be a certain merriment. Perhaps maybe even at this season. They look around. They think that they see happiness all around them. But in their life. All they know is darkness, thick darkness. And that all leads us to the answer. The answer to this darkness. In chapter 9, he declares there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So interesting that when he begins to talk now about the answer that God would send for this gloom and this anguish and this darkness, he begins to talk about a region of Israel that was known for having relations with their pagan neighbors "...which corrupted them and defiled them to the greatest degree." This wasn't in Jerusalem. This wasn't in Judea. This wasn't in the the really staunch and faithful part of the nation. This was up on the very far reaches of Israel, the borders with their, uh, their most difficult neighbors... And Galilee was always referred to as Galilee of the nations, or we might say Galilee of the Gentiles because this was the region that was known to be the most compromising, the most, we might say, unfaithful to God, the most worldly, we might even label it that way. This was known to be the region that if you were thinking of Israel was the darkest of regions. Now this was the very center of the darkness. That land that was distant and far from the temple and distant and far from the religious leaders. That land which was full of, of corruption and full of influence from the world. He's saying, I am going to remove the darkness. And where I'm going to do it is right in the darkest place. Right in the very darkest place of your nation. The people, he says, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That light, of course, was Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy about Christ. You can see down in verse 6, he goes on to say, a child is born to us, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who's coming. This is the one who has the power to break through all the gloom. This is the one who has the power to break through all the darkness. For a people who thought That they had searched out all the answers and there were none. For people who thought that they had been disappointed by every institution, by every leader, by every governor, by every king. For people who thought they had been disappointed even by their own religion. He's saying to them, you were in anguish. I treated you that way. Because of your sin, you've been separated from me. Because of your rebellion, you've turned away from my law. You have been cut off and faced the anguish of your rebellion. But I'm sending you a light. I'm sending you a penetrating light. A child who's going to be born. And it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter how dark your darkness is. His light can penetrate it. His light can bring life. His light can bring renewal. This is the light of Christmas. This is the light of our Savior. He's been born, as we celebrate tomorrow and today, He's been born to be a light to the nations. He's been born to be a light to you. He's been born to remove your anguish, your gloom and your despair. Your your judgment, your damnation. He was born to remove all that. To come into your life when you have exhausted every other resource, when you are feeling the emptiness of your soul. He was born to bring life. It's a glorious message. It's a wonderful message for us today. It's a great thing for us As we look around, even at the encroaching darkness around our culture, even seeing how they're trying to seemingly snuff out the light, to remember the darkness will never overcome it. His light will always, always accomplish its work. We're we're thankful to have all of you here today, especially if you're visitors, visiting family or whatever from out of town to be here with us. And we want you to know this message. We want you to know this Savior. We want you to see this light. We want you to experience this joy. And so we would not imagine a better way for you to respond today to the message of Christmas but to give your life to Christ. To come and confess the darkness of your soul and your life, the emptiness. And to lay yourself before Him. To let Him know that you have reached the end of yourself. And your life is His. You do that, He will flood all the darkness of your heart with the light of His truth. This will be the most special Christmas you've ever known. Would you stand with me and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the light that you sent to us we were a people in anguish and grief we were a people in deep darkness but you have shown the light upon us even us gentiles how undeserving we were lord how how deep was our lostness but how powerful is the sun how powerful is his light I pray, Father, that it would shine today into the hearts of those who still wonder, who still meander through life, who still are walking in the deep gloom and anguish of their sin. May you grant them the freedom of forgiveness, the glory of your light. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.